whatever kind of company they are, whatever size company they are, whatever. And now as we've added individual membership, you know, whatever age you are, whatever amount of money you have, our giving model is truly democratic because everyone actually does have a 1%. What are some ways in which nonprofits can really shine and accomplish things that even purpose-driven businesses may not be able to? Why is it so important for sustainability to be inclusive of everybody, no matter our backgrounds, abilities, differences in beliefs, or accessibility? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To check out our limited 2019 Green Dreamer planners created to holistically support all that you do this year, just head to greendreamer.com. Your purchase will also support the planting of 50 trees and the continued production of Green Dreamer. So thank you so much if you get to find something that you love. More on this later along with a discount code just for you. But for now, on to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the CEO of 1% for the Planet, which you likely have heard of before. It's a global movement inspiring businesses and individuals to support environmental nonprofit solutions through annual membership and everyday actions. In addition to bringing experiences from her past leadership along, she believes strongly in the power of collective action, which is really at the core of 1% for the Planet's model and approach. She said, when people come together across traditional boundaries to solve complex problems, they create create stronger, more ethical, and more lasting solutions. You'll hear her shed more light on this in our conversation shortly, but for now, Green Dreamer is starting off with what inspired her passion for nature. Here's Kate Williams. I was very fortunate as a kid to have parents who encouraged me and my brothers to spend a lot of time outside. You know, it wasn't necessarily big wild spaces. It was the backyard, but we spent a lot of time running around outdoors. You know, it, it, it's, um, feel very interested in this and uh, cause it doesn't always happen this way, but I had like a moment, uh, when I was 18 years old, my parents had, as my graduation gift from high school, given me a month long trip in the Wind River Range in Wyoming with the National Outdoor Leadership School, which was just an incredible gift. And I spent this amazing month in these big mountains. And I remember a moment and I have my journal still from that time where I was just so taken both with the power of the place and the power I felt being in that place that that was, you know, I had the the thought and I wrote in my journal about how, you know, I don't know what this will look like, but, but this meaning being connected to outdoor places, protecting those places in some way, you know, living my life to, you know, in stewardship of these places, this is something that I, I need to spend my life doing. And, and really I have spent my career kind of figuring out what this is in terms of how do I work on behalf of the planet. So it's been quite a journey. Uh, I know you've been involved in various projects, but what was your background like that led you to becoming CEO of 1% for the planet? 
Well, I think like most people, it's, you know, not a linear path, but had its twists and turns. But the sort of basic flow of my career was that I started out being an outdoor educator. So given the amazing, intense transformational experience I had had in the outdoors, I really wanted to put some time into sharing that with other people. So for about 10 years, I led outdoor trips through various institutions and spent a lot of time out in the field with people of all ages, mostly younger people. But, you know, I did that. And then I transitioned to feeling like I really wanted to do more of the work of conserving and advocating for outdoor places. And that was another chunk of my career that was incredibly gratifying. And, you know, I learned a lot. And during that time, I really devoted a lot of my sort of personal growth to leadership development and got really interested in and curious about what are the most effective ways to do this work, to engage people in this work. And I became really interested in, you know, it's about protecting places, but it's also about engaging a broad group of people all over the world. And how does that happen? Like, how do we most effectively do that? And so with those questions sort of in my head, you know, I I continued on my path as a becoming a leader of an outdoor uh, oriented, a recreation organization. And then that was the springboard from which I then uh, was able to come to 1% for the planet. And it's been just an amazing opportunity to kind of pull together my you know, the many different strands of experiences that I've had in my career. I feel like that's a big question that we all need to answer is, in this time of need, how can we bring together people from all over the place, whether or not they're inherently interested in the environment or interested in sustainability? So from your past experiences and everything you've uh, been doing at 1% for the planet, what was the most important thing you learned in terms of what it takes to bring everybody together and be able to reach a broad audience? That's such a great question. And in many ways, I feel like that's the question because it really, the work of sustainability is something that, you know, we all have a stake in and we all have a share in and how do we really bring people in as you're saying. And so I think, I think for me, the kind of way I've, I've thought through that and where I've come to and what has gotten me there is sort of connecting the dots across my own life. You know, my childhood was spent, as I said, in in my backyard. It wasn't in necessarily these big wild places, but I formed this really deep connection through that. And, um, and so I, I have this deep personal belief in the importance of everyday nature of the, you know, the tree that you walk by every day on your way to school or of the garden plot in a vacant lot that's, you know, right there and accessible to a lot of people. And I feel like those places are really, really powerful. And, you know, I am also had the wonderful opportunity and am in love with the big outdoor places, the wild places. But I also recognize that not everyone is going to be able to get to those as their sort of point of contact. So to really be able to focus on that full spectrum of, you know, a windowsill garden, a tree outside your window of the intimate connections we can have with the everyday nature is really, really important. And that is a way that many connections can form and also that it's more equitable, you know, that there's more access to those real connections. So I think stewarding those opportunities for connection in my mind has become more and more important because then you start to look over the horizon and you get curious about the big mountains and about the value of wild places and about, you know, some of the the larger issues and dynamics and spaces that are so important for the health of our planet overall. 
Right. With urbanization, I feel like people in general are becoming more and more disconnected from the big outdoors. So even those little patches of outdoors or nature that we can connect with within cities, that can be really powerful as well. Definitely. And one of the things that, that I've really thought about a lot at 1% for the planet is there's also, you know, the essentially the nature that we bring into our homes through the choices we make about what we eat, what we purchase, you know, things like that. Because that's a, that's a lot of power that every person has every day as a consumer and as, you know, the, the person making choices about your life. And, you know, 1% for the planet has is, is just such an amazing movement that creates an opportunity for people to make everyday choices by choosing products that are giving back, by choosing products that are natural and, and you know, taking care of the planet as part of becoming a, an excellent product. So um, I think that in the context of the urbanization that you're that you mentioned, which I agree is a really important trend for us to you know recognize that there's there's the nature outside, but there's also the nature that we bring inside through our choices. And I think that's, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I feel like at this point, most people, at least within the sustainability world, have at least heard of 1% for the planet. But for those of us who are not familiar, can you walk us through what the nonprofit is about and its core mission briefly? Yes. So 1% for the Planet is a global nonprofit based in Burlington, Vermont. And our mission is to accelerate smart environmental giving. And the reason that that's our focus is that, you know, for our big, beautiful planet, there's actually a really small commitment of philanthropy to the issues that we need to address, to the nonprofits who are doing the work on the ground. In the United States, only 3% of total philanthropy goes to environmental nonprofits, which is a really small amount for this big, beautiful planet. Mm -hmm. So our work is focused on addressing that and bringing more companies and more people in to um, giving to these environmental nonprofits. And so the way we do that is that we have members. So we have business members who commit to donating 1% of their annual sales to environmental nonprofits. And we work very closely with those members to help them develop their giving strategies, to help them find the best fit nonprofit partners for them. And we curate and, and coordinate our the set of nonprofits that are part of our network. And then we also have individual memberships so that people can commit their 1%, which would be counted as 1% of salary. Mm. Um, and, and so people, individuals are fully part of the network as well, not just through the opportunity to purchase products from the 1% for the planet members, but also as people who are capable of giving their 1% in the form of dollars or time to environmental nonprofits. We hear brands being a part of 1% for the planet all the time. I didn't know that individuals could be part of it as well. So that's amazing. Um, so when brands have your logo on their products or on their website, this is what it means that they're part of your membership? Exactly. And it's a really important message because we certify every single year, we certify the giving of every member. And as I said, we're also, you know, working with our members to make sure that they're giving to the nonprofits that are the best fit for them in terms of what they're trying to do. So when that logo is on a product, it means that that company is the real deal, you know, that they are not saying that they're doing something. They have, they have a third party, which is 1% for the planet, certifying that every single year they'll, they're giving that full 1% of their revenues. And 
for anyone who has run a business or worked at a business or, you know, just done the math on 1%, it's a big number. It's a really big commitment. So, you know, not only does that logo signify that it's been certified, it, it also signifies that this is a company who's really, you know, walking the walk, that they're really making a high high level commitment and sticking with it. So it's a it's a great um, signal to consumers that here's a way that you can bring some of that nature inside your house in a way that's good for the planet. I feel like most companies that have committed themselves to donating one percent of their uh, is it revenues or their it's revenues revenues yeah. yeah. I feel like most of these companies are inherently focused on sustainability themselves, meaning that their products and their practices are also eco-friendly or eco-conscious. Are there any companies that really don't have sustainability as a core mission that have still committed their 1% to 1% for the planet? I would say that for the most part, the, you know, the 1% for the planet is part of a larger sustainability commitment on the part of companies. One thing that we really celebrate and, and that's a really dynamic part of our network is that just like the rest of us, our companies aren't perfect. Um, and we don't expect that of them. So they don't have to have you know, a perfect sustainability record. What they are is they're very much engaged in the journey of working and living sustainably. So we see um, so many of our companies, you know, making their 1% commitment and developing these really powerful partnerships with nonprofits. And that's part of work that then continues uh, as they, you know, learn from their nonprofits, as they make other commitments to, you know, other ways to really be sustainable. So, you know, our companies are these just incredibly uh, dynamic learning companies that are, you know, always evolving toward greater sustainability and their 1% for the planet commitment is an important part of that. I feel like it's especially difficult for companies just starting out to be absolutely perfect in everything that they do. So people must really appreciate that, you know, you don't have to be perfect to be a part of this, but it's kind of like a gateway because once you're a part of it, it's going to get you to think more about everything else that you're doing within your company. Definitely. And we've seen so many examples of that where, you know, companies are just really psyched to do the work and they learn so much from each other. So there are a lot of great connections from within our network between the different companies. Uh, and that can be a great value of joining the network is gaining access to other companies who are probably wrestling with some of the same challenges and figuring things out and have some lessons learned. And so we, we have these great connections that help each company to get better through their connections across the network. And with you as a CEO, what's been one of your most difficult moments as you've been uh, helping to expand the nonprofit's message and impact and to get more people and brands on board? You know, it's a good one to have, but the biggest challenge is um, really staying focused. So, you know, as a global network, we have 1,800 member companies and about, I think we're in 45 countries right now. Um, and we have individual members also spread out around the globe. And we have nonprofits addressing issues ranging from climate to food to land to water to wildlife. You know, we, we cover a lot of different aspects of caring for the planet. You know, we have a, a very big, complex piece of work that we're addressing and that we're engaged in. And so our challenge is to, you know, really embrace that 
the complexity of this movement that is such a powerful part of it, of all the different connections within it, but to do so in a really focused way so that our communication to the larger public is really clear so that people can understand and have that opportunity to um, learn and engage. So we've really, you know, worked at that. And, and I think it's really important for the growth of our network to have that really great balance of scale and complexity, but also really clear and focused messaging around what we're trying to do in the world. So what is the best way to balance these things? Is it more just about you knowing that there's a lot of different issues that you have to tackle within uh, the realm of environmental issues, but then knowing that when you bring this across to the public, it has to come out more simple? You know, the most important thing is having an awesome staff, I will say that, (laughs) and having, you know, a team who really is understands and is all in for the work that we're doing. And so when everyone is really pushing their part forward, which is what we have now, we do have this incredible team, um, we're able to really move this the movement forward. And we really do think about it as a dynamic movement. That's how it functions in the world. So then, you know, we, we, we get momentum going behind that. And then our storytelling and our messaging just helps to reinforce the clarity of what we're trying to do, which is to direct more and smarter dollars to the amazing environmental nonprofits who are doing the work on the ground. Most environmental nonprofits or even social enterprises and do good businesses struggle to get enough funding or support to be able to do the good that they do. And like you mentioned, you now have over 1800 companies on board. Yeah. And people around the world. So that I feel like that's huge. Um, what do you think has been key to 1% for the planet having been able to get so many companies and people on board to begin with? I think there are a few things. I mean, one is people just like to belong to something that's creating change. And we've really seen that in the last couple of years that it's been, you know, there have been some discouraging uh, signals and decisions made in larger contexts that can make people feel like how we're going to make the positive work happen. And 1% for the planet represents an action that everyone has access to that, that people can take our, you know, we have this philosophy that everyone has a 1%. So one of the really strong growth trends for 1% for the planet is consistently representing a way that people can take action, whatever kind of company they are, whatever size company they are, whatever. And now as we've added individual membership, you know, whatever age you are, whatever amount of money you have, it can be pretty overwhelming when you are, when you think about the different issues affecting our planet and what you care about and your desire to make change, it can, it can feel overwhelming. And so this, the 1% of the planet framework provides clarity and structure that can be really helpful. So I think putting all those pieces together has really helped us to, to gain momentum as we've created this way for everyday actions to add up to really big change. Yeah. And it sounds like accessibility has been really important as well. Definitely. And I think that's one of the things that I feel most passionate and excited about is the way in which our giving model is truly democratic because everyone actually does have a 1%. And and it can be hard to figure out how to give your 1%. And we've tried to create some ways to make that 
to break it down and make it even more accessible just through opportunities to donate volunteer time and have that count towards your 1% and things like that. Just all of it continuing to add value, but also making it more accessible. Maybe this is quite obvious, but what are your thoughts on the importance of accessibility and inclusivity uh, within the sustainability movement? Absolutely critical. Um, and really, there's some good progress being made, but it's so important from a bunch of different perspectives. I mean, from one perspective, I think just ethically and morally, you know, we share this planet, no matter where you live or how much money you have, you're, you're a human on this planet that we share. And so we need to take that into account. And I think um, it goes even deeper when you consider, you know, some of the impacts of climate change, for example, or other environmental problems, they often have a disproportionate impact on more vulnerable communities. So again, there's, I, I feel that there's an ethical obligation to make sure that everyone's voices and all stakeholders are considered. So, you know, I think that's one important way to look at it. That's just fundamental. Another perspective is just more tactically is looking at the future of the environmental movement. The U.S., for example, is only becoming more diverse. And, you know, there's I'm, I'm sure people are aware of the various ways in which that's being measured. But one is that, you know, by 2040 or 2045, the um, majority will be non-white. You know, that's just one indicator of a shift in who are going to be the constituencies that will hopefully be, you know, elect, getting elected to office, will be stepping into leadership roles. You know, I, I see this as a really positive thing, to be clear. And it's really important that as we continue to progress in this way, that um, we make sure that the opportunities for connections across demographic lines, across um, ethnic lines, you know, things like that, that there's a shared understanding and commitment to, again, this planet that we share. And you kind of touched on this, but given that a lot of our environmental issues, it's mostly people who are less well off that are most vulnerable to these issues. But at the same time, it's the people who are more well off who are doing the most damage across mm -hmm. our globe. How do we work with this going forward? That's a it's a great question. And it's a hard question. And um, I think because there's so many different complexities embedded in that is that I think the more we can focus on developing real relationships, the more we will be able to create some new pathways forward. So, for example, for 1% for the Planet, you know, one of the things we really focus on is developing these strong giving partnerships between our companies and the nonprofits that they give to. So the money doesn't pass through us. We work with our companies to identify the nonprofit partners that are the best fit for them, but then they're giving directly to those nonprofits. So they're in relationship with those nonprofits. And I think the more that those kinds of relationships are forming so that the donor is connected to and learning from and uh, in relationship with the on the ground practitioner who is often going to be where a lot of these equity um, issues are being addressed, the more learning kind of moves up and down across the spectrum. And that, um, you know, that creates the potential for greater understanding, which is a critical aspect of then creating the conditions for change to be made. I don't want to sound naive or Pollyanna. I mean, I think there are some structural difficulties in our society, but I do really believe in the power of 
good people making good choices and making commitments and building relationships around those and, and sticking with it. And through that, creating uh, examples of and opportunities for more change. On your website, it says that nonprofits are able to operate in sectors, including and beyond where traditional markets exist. Is this what you mean by going beyond like traditional markets is building these relationships or what else does this entail? Yeah, that's a great question because I, you know, I hadn't really framed it in that way, but I do think that the um, power of these relationships is a um, real value that is created for the world beyond the impact on the ground that these nonprofits are creating. I think also just on that nonprofit point, because we really do believe in the power of the nonprofit sector, so they can go where there may not yet or ever be a market. Nonprofits can also really invest in advocating for certain issues or against certain things without needing to be beholden to a set of shareholders without that sort of drive for profit. You know, nonprofits are beholden to their mission. Um, That's what they need to be true to. And they need to have enough money to do that. And that's what we're trying to help them to do. But what they're obligation is legally is to implement their mission. And that's, that's a really powerful force, which is different than business. We also believe that business has a huge role to play. So it's really amazing to see the connection between what business can do in terms of consumer engagement, in terms of bringing dollars to the table, connecting that with the unique power of nonprofits. And it creates this this really powerful force, which, you know, again, sort of back to that question of how do we create more access? How do we create change that cuts across some of the traditional divides? I think that's, that, that's a pretty exciting cross-sector combination that creates some new possibilities. I feel like we're at a point where at the same time, we have a lot of different environmental issues to address. And seeing that you take on a holistic approach to this and also have to examine all the different problems we need to take on, what do you think are our most urgent issues that we need to prioritize in 2019? Oh, that's that's such a hard question because uh, given what we're sort of learning about from all of our amazing nonprofit partners, there are you know so many. I think so. I'm going to answer the question in, in two ways. One is just to take the sort of global cut on it, and you know I think addressing the sort of suite of causes of climate change is really important because there are some other issues which are hugely important. But if climate change accelerates at the rate at which it's predicted to, if we don't make changes, you know, we may not have the opportunity to continue to address those other issues. So making sure that we're sufficiently attending to the issue of climate change is really important. But then the other sort of cut I want to give on answering this is that I think one of the things that we see and that we really believe is important is that people give generally to what they love or to what they are, you know, feel great concern about being at risk. Um, And so a lot of giving happens locally. And I think it's really, really important, even as we prioritize some of these like mother of all issues like climate change, people's connection and uh, ability to really wrap their arms around how they can make change plays out at a much smaller, more tangible scale. And I think it's that's, that's not insignificant. It's really, really important from an engagement standpoint, from uh, making our communities healthier and uh, more resilient standpoint that we invest in those issues as well. So I think it's kind of telescoping between the 
the big global issues, but then also recognizing that it's really important that local action around food and how food is grown and how food waste is managed, water, you know, things like that. And a lot of these ladder up to addressing climate change too. So balancing both ends of that spectrum is, is really, really important as we head into 2019. And I, I tend to believe that people are capable of handling that complexity in their heads when given the chance. And again, you know, it's easy to feel really overwhelmed. And that's why it's important to maintain a tether to how you can take local action and, and begin to understand how that fits into that, the, some of the larger issues. For sure. It really doesn't have to be either or. Sometimes we have to get involved more locally with things that are more direct and more actionable for us to stay connected to these global issues. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of climate change, what do you think is holding us back most from being able to tackle this at either a national or global scale at this point? Great question. I mean, in, in a way, if I had a, the right answer, that would be the, the million dollar answer. I think the things that I think about, one, are I've been very um, informed by and inspired by the work of Project Drawdown, which essentially is a very credible global research project that has created a record of the solutions that already exist, that we already know how to do, that if we did them, could turn things around. And so it's a really important mental framework because, and action framework, because it sort of moves from saying we have to figure out how to solve this problem to saying we actually know we just need to start doing this stuff. So I think that's a really important part of the movement that's gaining traction right now is this understanding of we know a lot of what we need to do. We just need to start doing it. So then that gets to the other sort of layer of this is, you know, figuring out. So, okay, political will has clearly been a problem. I mean, when the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Agreement, you know, that is a significant move. But what we have seen, and um, this is not, certainly not just in our network, there's been a very broad movement of people saying, okay, so if it's not going to happen at a political level, how are we going to still stay in commitments like that, that make a difference? So accepting and acknowledging that we know a lot of what we need to do and just start doing those and investing in those things that we already know, you know, working at that through our network and using that as a framework to help identify nonprofit partnerships. Uh, and many other people are as well. You know, we're, we're in the fan club of Project Drawdown. Um, but then I think also recognizing that there are some big changes that need to happen. And so figuring out in the absence when they're cases where there's an absence of political engagement, what are the ways that businesses and individuals and, you know, different, any, anyone who can come to the table, how can we come together to create the sort of scale of change that we need to um, in the private sector? And for us as individuals, what do you think are some of the most impactful and easy things that we can do to help make a difference? Well, I think that the most important thing to remember is that everyone can do something to make a difference and that little changes add up. So one thing is just to break it down to size because it can feel really overwhelming. So I think remembering that there's always something that you can do and and among those things, and I think it's really important that people choose because you're, you're going to stay committed to something that is the right fit for you. So among the really powerful choices that people can make is considering their transportation. Depending on where you live, you have different options 
options for public transportation, for bike transportation, for you know ways to reduce the amount of time spent in cars or in planes. Each of us doing what we can um, in that way is is one thing that people can consider. Thinking about the food you eat, you know, a more plant-based diet. There's great data to show that a more plant-based diet reduces someone's carbon footprint. So I think that's a really important step that people can take. And there are many others, but I think these are the like kind of micro choices that we can each make. And I think while making those choices, it's really important to remember that a lot of the um, really big levers that are driving climate change are not ones that as individuals we have our hands on. Those are at the scale of large companies, of large government. So it's really important that we keep pressuring those bigger changes. But in the meantime, the power of personal choice not only, again, adds up to big change, but it also it creates power in yourself. You understand what you have the power to do. And to help support larger change, what we can do is to support nonprofits like 1% for the Planet working on those bigger changes. So we'll have to yeah. keep that in and mind just, as well. Just to you know, add to that, because we do recognize and we hear from individuals and we hear from our members and their conversations with consumers and the consumer data shows this and the, the giving data shows this is that a lot of times giving to the environment is hard. It's hard to know what to do. It's hard to know how to do it. It, it can be easy to feel like, why does, like, how can my little choice make a difference? My little choice, my little gift, you know, whatever it is. And so that can feel discouraging and it can make people kind of walk away. And so one of the things we've thought about a lot is how can we make that simpler? So I've, you know, described our models, some, but we've also been testing. And, you know, one of the things that we have that we'll be rolling out uh, now through, you know, into next year is simpler ways that people can step into environmental giving in a way that takes some of the guesswork out of it and helps to answer some of the questions that may be holding people back. So one example is um, a great new um, opportunity that we've created called the My Planet Pass. And what it is, is it's, you know, kind of of like a ski pass, like, you know, you can buy a ski pass that gives you access to a bunch of different mountains, or you can buy a, you know, in some uh, cities, you can buy a movie pass that gives you, you know, the ability to attend movies at some different theaters. You know, there are a bunch of different examples like that. What we've created is the My Planet Pass, which is a bundle of amazing nonprofits, and you pay one pass price to 1% for the planet, and we distribute the money to those nonprofits, you become a member of those nonprofits, you gain some cool connection to those nonprofits, but you've, your engagement has been very simple. So we're super psyched about that because it does create a kind of new opportunity for environmental engagement that lets people give to a bunch of different issues, but in a very simple and streamlined way. So it's simple on our end in terms of the giving, but then uh, your team has done all the research to make sure that this will help us be able to make the biggest positive impact. Yeah, it's like one payment that packs a punch for the planet, which is really exciting. Where can we go to stay updated on My Planet Pass uh, and 1% for the Planet online and on social media? All the information about our organization and opportunities to get in on My Planet Pass or to become a member or to make a donation, all of that can be found at 1%fortheplanet.org, and that's one spelled out, so O-N-E, percentfortheplanet.org. And then we are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And just so you know, when you're trying to 
find these and we can certainly send them to you, but they're all at the bottom of our um, website. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to give you a discount code in case you're interested in our 2019 Green Dreamer planners. They feature our major Earth Awareness Days, 101 self-care tips and reminders, gratitude lists, weekly simple suggested actions to take and cross off, minimalist weekly and monthly pages, extra bullet journal pages so you can customize your planning, and more. And again, each planner contributes to the planting of 50 trees through international nonprofit Eden Reforestation Projects. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you and you want to support reforestation and green dreamer podcast just head to greendreamer.com slash planners to see our six beautiful designs and use the code green dreamer for 10 percent off again that's greendreamer.com slash planners and discount code green dreamer for now on to our final five let's power through what's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow one of my favorite publications is Grist. Um, I get their newsletter um, and I find it to be a very engaging, informative, and both funny and hard-hitting and well-written uh, environmental piece, environmental media source. Uh, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I tell myself that I'm incredibly fortunate to get to work on behalf of the planet. What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I wake up really early and I meditate and I run outside. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I have shifted to eating a plant-based diet and it's been a really great journey of learning and meeting people and feeling really healthy. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? The 1% for the Planet Network. Honestly, our members and nonprofits are unbelievable and inspiring every day. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I would say everyone has a 1% and think about what is your 1% and how do you want to give that to create change? And it's a super powerful thought process and action to do that. So I encourage you to, to join us in doing that. What's your 1% that you may be able to contribute to the betterment of our future? What you can offer may look different than what other people can offer, but we all have our own personal 1%, whether that's our time, effort, or money, and that's what we can start with. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview, the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 101 for episode 101. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and on our new account at Green Dreamer Podcast. I also want to thank our reviewer, Cineberry, for your feedback. They said, I can't remember how I came upon this podcast, but I have to say I'm so glad I did. The host has a pleasant voice, she gets the information out there, and then encourages you to do your own research. Her guests give real information, but more so she asks the questions that dice into getting information. I like that because it's not just fluff or filler talk, she really gets her guests to give real information. End quote. Thank you so much for your positive review and support, Cineberry. I'm going to take this to heart and we'll keep working hard to have our conversations be as valuable and helpful to you as possible. I'm so honored to have you. Thank you. Thank you. As we're closing off, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, 
hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.